This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Let's hit it! Give me a vacation! Vacation! Give me a wave! Surfing! Give me a city tour! The trolley! Give me animals! The zoo! Give me some sea life! <laughs> Give me museums! Park. Give me a woo! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Hello and welcome to Food Stuff. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And I'm Annie Reese. And today we are going to talk about a listener request we got a while back from Justin about French food and why it's considered the food of all foods. And we're talking about this because... It's kind of Bastille Day. It was. It was. I don't know point. when you're listening to this, but when it came out, <laughs> it was around that time. Yes. So happy Bastille Day to our listeners in France. And anyone else celebrating? Oh, yeah. Definitely. Um, so we're going to dive right in because this actually turned out to be a huge topic. Uh, yeah, strange. French cuisine is not <laughs> like a small topic to talk about. Mm-hmm. Mm, odd. Yeah, so first off, it's um, also called haute cuisine mm-hmm. or la grande cuisine. Uh, and it's not just types of food. It's also methods of cooking, traditions, and the rigorous training of chefs. Yes, the, the entire kitchen and dining experience as one. Yes. And for this, I used something called TV tropes to demonstrate this whole stereotype. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it's a wiki page I used to use a lot for um, Sminty. We had this show called Stereotypology, and it's just a really good compilation of cultural instances of, like, tropes and stereotypes. So weird. Yeah, I know. Surprise. <laughs> uh, and there are two entries in there for French food. One is called French Cuisine is Haughty, and the other is called Snails and so on. Uh-huh. Yeah. 
and so the French cuisine's haughty trope talks about how in popular culture Paris is often seen as the culinary capital of the world, the gold standard of fine dining. And uh, they use the example uh, a lot of times writers to make restaurants sound fancy. They put Shay in the name. And yeah. Sometimes real people do that too. Yeah, I've seen that in a few real life restaurants. Yeah. <laughs> so it happens in the wild. Um, <laughs> And this sort of haughty atmosphere usually includes the staff. A good example of this is the restaurant scene in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Ah, yes. Abe Froman, the sausage king of Chicago. <laughs> if you haven't seen it, it's, I recommend it. It's, it's funny. It's a cute movie. It's yeah, fun. yeah for It's sure. a little dated, but, you know, I still enjoy it. <laughs> but yes, uh, outside of even uh even the tropes of television and movies, I mean, this is a this is a cultural concept that we have for sure. Mm hmm. Uh, for instance, UNESCO updated their list of intangible cultural heritage in 2010 to include French gastronomy. Uh, and thanks to Thomas Jefferson, famous Francophile who considered French food the only food fit for White House functions, it became sort of the official cuisine at presidential gatherings. And that was until Warren Harding in 1921, who called for, quote, American cuisine to be served. And with a few minor exceptions, like JFK famously, it's been that way ever since. And the United States' first very fancy restaurant, like very, very fancy, very big, very famous restaurant, Delmonico's, opened in New York City in 1830, complete with a French chef and a French menu. Right. And in Las Vegas, a good deal of the most expensive and highest regarded casino restaurants are French. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're like me, the movie Ratatouille came to mind, uh, where the French cuisine is the best cuisine. It's sort of a big part of the plot. Yeah. Um, lovely, lovely film as well. And, and this isn't just an American phenomenon, of course. There's no. this, this goes on globally with the concept of, of, yes, that, that elusively beautiful French cuisine. It's like nothing else. How can any other cuisine even compare to it? Why would you bother? <laughs> Why would you even try? Now that I think of it, the fanciest restaurant I went to in China was a French really? restaurant. Really? Oh, man. It was very good. It was I, delicious. I believe you. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of the food was delicious, though. Um, oh, yeah, that's true. All food. Anyway, uh, so how did we get here? Yeah. Um, well, most things I read traced the t- the timeline of haute cuisine to the 14th century. At the time, if you were going to go on a culinary tasting adventure through France and England, you'd find the food to be pretty much the same, actually. But by the 1700s, that was very much not the case. And according to Jean-Robert Pitt's writing on the subject, Gastronomie Française, part of the reason behind this was probably... <gasps> Religion. Religion? Yeah. Does this have to do with Protestants and Catholics again? How did you know? Well, I read ahead in the notes. (laughs) That Lauren, always reading ahead. (laughs) Uh, Yes, so starting with the Protestant Reformation in 1517, Protestant Europe started viewing food and the pleasure you get from it as somewhat greedy, borderline sinful indulgence of the Roman Catholic Church. Oh, Yes, you should stick to plain <laughs> foods and not much of them. Not like those Roman Catholics. <laughs> oh, those guys. Yes. Meanwhile, Roman Catholicism, they had a long history of mead making, beer brewing, cheese making, and wine making, which is what the Protestants pointed to as this indulging sinful thing. And the Catholics weren't inclined to stop. And uh, he's off for that. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Yes. 
<laughs> analysis of recorded sermons during the 17th and 18th century found food and drink overindulgence condemnation only popped up in 4% of the Sundays surveyed. From from Roman Catholic uh, sermons. Right. Yeah. They were much, they were not uh, complaining about that. Not into it. No. Um, another factor here was politics, for sure. Oh, yeah. Um, royalty set the bar for fine dining, going about as far back as royalty goes in France and in most places, but in France, what we're talking about here. Sure. Uh, the common folk could come and observe the complicated prepping, cooking, and serving of food to royalty, and this in turn was adopted as the standard for aristocratic families. This public viewing of, of eating is not a thing that I think I was aware of before we were doing this research. No, me either. I think it would just make me sad. But I, I, I don't know. I, maybe you didn't have too much else to do. I mean, yeah, like you don't have Netflix. You kind of make your own fun. <laughs> yeah, like what's, true. what's the king eating today? Let's go find out. Let's go watch. Uh-huh. And these large extravagant meals were more about showing off than the actual enjoyment of the food. Um, partly because it was usually cold by the time it arrived. Oh no. Yeah, because the kitchen was placed so far away in case of fire and the benediction of the chaplain. And to test it for poison, that that went on with royalty in specific. So that was another time that Just you had barrier. to wait. Yeah. So, yeah, it was more about showing off. But around this time, the flavors and style of traditional French cuisine began to emerge. After medieval times uh, and the dependence on spices that had defined its foods, France moved towards simpler, more buttery, herby ingredients and sauces. French producers during the Middle Ages were regulated by the guild system, which essentially stipulated that you could only work within a certain field. Right. Very narrow. Yeah. Sauce makers could only work in sauce. Stuff like that. Sure. Yeah. Another factor was location, location, location. Well, France is so centrally located in in the in the West, and so therefore it you know saw a lot of economic activity and the movement and of a lot of ideas and people. Mm-hmm. And thanks to the varied climate and geography, France's agriculture was and is often just as plentiful. But the same thing could be said for other countries like Italy. So it, it couldn't have just been that. Yeah, I I think it was really the the. I would I would argue. Ooh, oh, she's going to argue with, with not me. one but two hands on my hips. Oh my goodness! Um, that that it's that it's really France's political clout. Um, not just not just the the politics of royalty, but their their clout worldwide that drove its cuisine to dominate the the kind of global food landscape. Because, but before the revolution in the 1780s and even after a bit, France was continually expanding as as a superpower. It was a mark of distinction for foreign nobles to marry French nobles. Uh, thus, French traditions and culture spread, and those traditions and culture became associated with high society um, outside of France. Um, and and th- this is part of why, in English, the words for animals tend to be Germanic and the words for prepared meats tend to be French. The, the lower classes who did the farming retained the Germanic words, while the culinary language evolved to include the French words. Oh, I never thought of that, but yeah, yeah. that's right. Huh. Also regarding language, uh, residents of faraway colonies were learning French language or pidgin versions of the French language to keep up with trade 
And in the 1600s, King Louis XIV began demanding that major international treaties be negotiated in French instead of Latin, uh, which was one of the prior lingua francas, and the Western world would catch on. Over the next couple hundred years, French became the language of scholarly literacy. Um, and French royals also really heavily um, patronized the arts, thus furthering the association of French culture with high society. Which brings us to culture and documentation, because haute cuisine is one of the most well-documented of the cuisines, <laughs> which meant that a lot of people were copying it or aspiring to it. Yeah. Um, the first printing press made cookbooks started popping up in the 1600s. Cookbooks, of course, did exist before then, um, but the invention of the printing press in the 1400s made books pretty much infinitely more affordable. Um, also, before then, cookbooks were largely like health and diet-related tomes. We've talked about a lot of these on the show. Yeah. Also, also, due to those kind of guilds and stuff that were going on, professional chefs' uh, recipes and methods were considered sort of treed secrets, like not stuff that you would just want to put down in a book for any old person who could read to read. Yeah. Come in and snipe your business. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And the circulation of these books was important for several reasons, one being it spread French cuisine and recipes to other countries, and the authors of these French cookbooks were particularly um, assertive. And yeah, that's a polite word for it. (laughs) It is, isn't it? And France's superiority in the realm of cookery. (laughs) There there was was a lot of um, just national pride. I would say. Right. A quote from a 1691 cookbook went, especially in France, can one take pride in our excelling over all other nations in these matters? Oh. Very serious. Uh, and this includes La Varenne's La Cuisine Française in 1651, which mentioned classic French stuff like roux and mirefeuille. Possibly for the first time. Yeah. And I said that with a very strange accent. I apologize. It's okay. Uh, it's, it, it's, a, it's that dessert with a whole bunch of little pa- pastry crust layers. It's really tasty. Yeah, it's very yeah. good. That would be François-Pierre de Leverin, a culinary tradesman who rose to the role of kitchen clerk, which was a really big head of household kind of job that was generally reserved for nobility at the time in his 20s before publishing The French Kitchen, as it's translated in English, in his 30s. And it was a really remarkable book because it was the first French cookbook to have been published in several decades. And it happened to be published during a time when the the concepts of fashion or, or like novelty versus tradition were really intense. Um, it, it followed the trends of the time, uh, moving away from those heavy medieval flavors that were built on um, on disguising the fact that your food was rotting. Right. <laughs> Away from that and and more to focus on the quality of fresh ingredients and on intensifying flavors by creating sauces from the liquids that are given off during cooking. Um, it also marked a preference for butter versus fat or but butter versus lard. Oh, rather. Yeah. yeah, which which is a question that came up the other day. I don't remember where, possibly on Facebook. And <laughs> in, in in regards to that apple pie recipe, that's that's what it was. Someone asked uh, why it didn't have any lard in it. And I was like, well, historically, I'm sure there's a reason. That there. butter became a popular thing. There it is. There you go. French French cuisine in the 1600s. Mm-hmm. And a few decades later, the French Revolution changed the way French cooking worked by ending that guild system. <sighs> yeah, anyone who wanted to could theoretically become a chef. And on top of that, chefs working for royalty and aristocracy ousted or worse by the French Revolution were kind of out of a job. Yeah. Uh, those that weren't hired by uh, unscathed rich folk 
or that didn't go to work for monarchs in other countries like Russia. That was a big one. Definitely happened. Yeah. Went on to form the first restaurants. Before that, most meals were in private residences or inns sometimes where you could pay for soup or something. But you wouldn't really go there aside from... Yeah, you wouldn't really staying. eat there yeah. in, unless you were staying there. Right. Or maybe if you were, like, real drunk and hungry. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> I could see that happening. Uh, the word restaurant first referred to fortified meat broth. Huh. Yes. A fellow who was trying to get around a ragu monopoly did so. <laughs> <laughs> yes. A ragu monopoly. A ragu monopoly. All right. By selling restaurants as well as ragu and other things, thereby offering these fancy new food things called choices. What? What? The introduction of multiple food options at a single establishment or group of establishments allowed more collaboration and refining of French cuisine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one of the most important figures to haute cuisine and to our modern Western cuisine in general was Marie-Antoine Carême. He was born in 1785, just in time for the French Revolution, and spent his early days working at a patisserie. His signature creation were these impressive structures of pastry and marzipan called pièce montée. With his pastries, Carême caught the eye of Napoleon's chief diplomat, who hired Carême to work as his personal chef. Ah. Yeah. About a decade later, in 1815, Carême ventured to London, where he wrote his first book, The Patissier Royale. He went on to publish several books, and in them he included portraits of himself and spoke, some might say bragged, very <laughs> highly of himself. <laughs> Here's a quote from him for you. Chef of kings and king of chefs. Oh. Yeah. Goodness, that's like a hip-hop line. That's <laughs> kind of, Yeah. <laughs> That should be a song if it isn't already. Yeah. He's widely accepted to be the first version of a celebrity chef. And while his recipes might not have been new or unique to him necessarily. Uh, he was definitely building off the work of, uh, of Loverin. Yes. Um, he, he was the first though to document the process thoroughly. And he is thought to be, his is thought to be the first cookbook to use the phrase, you can try this for yourself at home. Oh, yeah. And Karim also gets credit for organizing the complicated mess that was recipes and techniques surrounding the rapidly congealing cuisine associated with France's elite. This cuisine involved expensive ingredients, complicated techniques, and lots, lots of butter. Huh. Yep. All those, all those great things. Sounds like cult cuisine to me. Mm-hmm. He proposed that chefs wear a uniform, and he came up with the four mother sauces that served as bases for a lot of French recipes. Allemande, bechamel, espagnol, and velote? Yeah. Uh, he, he gave you the building blocks to make dishes as complicated or not as you would like. Yep. Yeah. And then he went to work for Russian Emperor Alexander I hmm. and died in 1829 at the age of 45. Oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's not, however, the only celebrity chef or, or celebrity food human in general who we have to talk about. But first, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. 
Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. Just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So. Contemporary to Carême was another famous French food persona who was not a chef. By profession, he was a lawyer, but he would become the West's first restaurant critic. And I'm talking about a guy with so many names, Alexandre Balthazar Laurent Grimaud de la Renée. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I said that like seven times before we started rolling, you guys. He was born to aristocratic parents and only survived the revolution, be- the revolution because he was born with deformed hands. And so his birth certificate deemed him a bastard wow. by law. Um, and, but he had these excellent prostheses. And, uh, despite a sometimes shaky relationship with his family, he was this outrageous high society figure both before and after the revolution, which was a distinction that helped his publication of several volumes of an, uh, an almanac of gourmands. Ooh. Uh, become very influential around in society. Um, this, this almanac explained how, how to party, <laughs> basically, and how to enjoy food fashionably. Um, sometimes with an eye toward tradition and sometimes with some serious side eye toward tradition. Um, and he, he also set up these, these critique dinners based partially on his stints as a theater critic and thus encouraged the development of, of restaurant cooking as a fine art to be both enjoyed and, and kind of dissected by the public. He sounds like a really interesting fellow. Oh, he's great. We are totally doing an entire episode on this guy. He's so cool. 
Oh man, he had these funeral funeral dinners, funeral themed <sighs> dinners that he would set up where he would like invite you into his like hotel and <sighs> like lock you in all night and like all the drapery would be black and like he would have crazy themes based around like color or texture or flavor profile, like whatever. He had it going on. He this dude really knew how to party. Okay, we're definitely talking about him later. Yeah. Um <laughs> our next f- uh, famous French food persona also was not a professional chef. He was also a lawyer. Wow. And a mayor and a judge. I guess it was a popular thing for kind of like middle class, upper class people to do. I guess so. In 1825, Jean-Altem Brillat-Severin, which I think I almost just said correctly, published The Physiology of Taste or Meditations on Transcendental Gastronomy. Ooh. That's the full title. Yeah. Um, he couldn't get it picked up by a publisher. But since then, it has never been out of print. It's part dietary and culinary science, part autobiography, and part social gastronomy theory. And it's all delivered with this sense of delight, a, a joy de vivre, if you will, <laughs> um, that's that's really infectious. He's sort of an, an Alton Brown of his time, although he talked about sex a whole lot more. Oh, um, well. he, he wrote specifically that the sense of physical desire is the sixth human sense. Wow. Another um, interesting character. Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, he is where you get the phrase, um, you are what you eat from, or, or rather, to, uh, to quote, tell me what you eat and I will tell you what you are. Oh, I like that better. Yeah, yeah. Which, you, which you also may remember if you, if anyone out there is a fan of Iron Chef, that was kind of their their oh, quote. Okay. If you have never watched Iron Chef, go check it out. It's great. The Japanese version specifically. Um, also, he wrote great things that are slightly less popular, like a dinner which ends without cheese is like a beautiful woman with only one eye. <laughs> <laughs> have we said that on the show before? No, we talked about why you have cheese at the end of the meal, but we did not mention this quote. <laughs> We rectified that situation. Excellent, Lauren. (laughs) Anytime. Uh, My favorite of his might be, um, partially because it's a little bit self-aggrandizing for me, um, animals feed themselves, men eat, but only wise men know the art of eating. Ooh. And, and yeah, it was filled, his, his book was filled with these little bomb mots like these that he, he spent 25 years writing it. He didn't tell any of his like judge buddies what was going on. He, he never mentioned to anyone that he was writing it. And then all of a sudden, um, he published it and it became this huge thing. Uh, Paris was in the throes of this whole new like chef restaurant phenomenon at the time. And, and the publication of this witty book had everybody talking, uh, especially because it was originally published without naming the author. Ooh. Mystery. Uh-huh. Um, the buzz intensified when it was revealed that the writer was not a chef, but a judge and by Jean's death just four months after its publication. Oh, wow. Perfect storm. Yeah. Um, this was also a time post-revolution when the middle class was emerging in full. There were so many French people who were not members of the upper class, but who could nonetheless and sort of suddenly afford all of these material pleasures. And they were hungry for precisely this type of advice. Was that a purposeful pun or an accidental one? Uh, are any puns ever really accidental? <laughs> Actually, most of mine are. I think I, yeah, I don't think I, believe I so. realized that when I wrote that. Oh. It was excellent either way. Thank you. It should also be mentioned uh, that this was a time globally that science and industry were advancing so fast. Um, moving into the end of the 19th century, especially, there was a huge cultural emphasis on things like chemistry and travel that both changed the way that people thought about food and changed what was available. 
Um, and this is where France, as a seat and, and waypoint of Western culture, was really poised to both benefit from and, and influence all of that new stuff that was flying around. Mm-hmm. Related. Two French brothers, André and Edouard, had started an automobile tire company in 1889. This is related, I promise. I've always wondered this. They recognized something of a business opportunity in the rise of destination travel. They figured that if they could get the word out about some of the good stops for car travelers throughout France, they could get drivers to use up their tires faster and buy tires more often. So they started a ratings publication, The Michelin Guide. Uh. Yes, those Michelins. Yes, of both Michelin (laughs) tires and The Michelin Guide. Same dudes. Oh my gosh, this is awesome. Um, the, the guide first published in 1900 and described hotels, mechanics, and gasoline vendors, which were rare. Um, and in 1926, they began reviewing fine dining establishments. In 1931, they introduced the three star, the three star system. Um, and at first, you know, they only reviewed restaurants in France. Rollout to other countries was slow for a really long time. They didn't even start reviewing places in the United States until 2004. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Um, and so I don't think it ever intended to, like, unfairly posit French cuisine as the best. Uh, it's just their home base. Uh, and, and it's a very much talked about publication. Yeah. It, it means a lot to have a Michelin star, let alone two Michelin stars and three. Oh my God. Three. Oh, my gosh. See, I always thought that was... I was being silly for always thinking of Michelin tires. Like, isn't it strange that they isn't have the that same name? Hilarious! What a what a coincidence! Oh, this is a beautiful fact to same, learn today. Same dudes, but yeah. But let's let's get back to French celebrity chefs because we haven't had one of those in a minute about this segment, which is technically about French celebrity chefs. Okay, yes. so another one who changed the way that Western kitchens work is Auguste Escoffier. He was born in 1846. And he did really a whole lot in his 88 years on this planet, um, but perhaps his most important contribution to French cooking was his codification of the brigade system in restaurants. Um, previously, it had been common for a chef to cook everything for a single order, start to finish, and then move on to the next order. Uh, Escoffier's system set up stations that each dish could move among, a sort of assembly line kind of concept. Uh, you know, fish here, meat over there, sauce station, vegetable station. And this is where the the high-intensity, militaristic, organized restaurant kitchen comes from. Uh, he also encouraged his chefs to drink a low-to-no-alcohol malt beverage instead of wine while they were cooking, which, you know, probably cut down on a little bit of the chaos. Probably. A little bit. <laughs> he created this partially out of necessity. Um, he, he was the co-creator of the Ritz Hotel chain in the early 1900s, and so he really needed a smooth operation to provide service to the, just the sheer number of people who were coming through. Mm-hmm. His lunch operation could turn out 500 plates an hour. Wow. I don't even understand that. And following in Karem's footsteps, he was pushing for uh, for seasonal ingredients and intensified flavors. And so as the Ritz chain went global, Escoffier's concept of, of service and dining both became sort of the gold standard around the world for fancy. Wow. He was a fascinating dude as well. Um, he campaigned for kitchen workers' rights and for women to be allowed to dine in public. <gasps> Ooh, Scandal. I know. How progressive. <laughs> um, he was supposedly one of Sarah Bernhardt's longtime lovers. Oh. Um, he was the first commercial canner of tomatoes. What? And the first cookbook writer to talk about a la carte menus. 
Oh, my goodness. Uh, and he never learned English, supposedly for the fear that it would make him think or, heaven forbid, cook like the English. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's so French. <laughs> it is. <laughs> uh, Escoffier's work influenced uh, the, the uh, La, Russe, La Russe Gastronomique, um, which is an encyclopedia of French cooking you may have heard of. It was, it was published by Escoffier's friend and a contemporary chef by the name of Prosper... Montagna. Montagna, thank you. Mm-hmm. In uh in 1938, it, it reads a little bit actually like like historical cookbooks which tended to be reminders of technique more than like step-by-step recipes, but it's considered like the bible of oh, wow. French cooking. <laughs> My goodness. Mm-hmm. Strong words. Escoffier also influenced Julia Child, who of course brought fancy French cookery to the lower middle class starting in the 1960s. Ah, yep. And I, th- I think that I think that the the range of influence that Escoffier's work uh, influenced by all of these other uh, big famous French chefs and thinkers, um, I, I think that the the range of his influence is really indicative of kind of why French cuisine is is the is the it thing or has been the it thing because you know this. And and Annie, you mentioned it earlier, like this now classic approach gives you building blocks of cooking um, and an appreciation for fresh and seasonable ingredients. And it's so adaptable. You know, it can survive through this huge variety of of shifts and fashions and and economic times and be applied to so many different things. So, yeah. yeah. That's kind of how it became the it thing, whole cuisine. Uh, but how is it doing these days? Hmm. Yeah. Let's find out after another quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. 
Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So, State of the Union, French cooking edition, French cuisine edition. Not great. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's not as, like, like completely highly regarded to the exclusion of all other things. No. As it used to be. No. And it is getting better. Uh, the first issue of New York Times, Guide to Dining Out New York, which came out in 1964, included eight restaurants in its three-star category, and seven of them were French. Oof. Yeah. But the world's 50 best restaurants in 2016 only had one French restaurant. Oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's that's almost a slap in the face at that point. I know. In 2013, headlines around the globe read that up to 70% of French kitchens were serving and or using meals pre-made in big, off-site industrial kitchens. Oh. Yes. That's not French food. No. Since the 1960s, French wine consumption has dropped more than 50%. And 10% or less of cheese in the French market are raw milk cheeses. Hmm. <laughs> well, that cheese business is partially due to, like, health concerns and regulations around the world. Yeah. Uh, and on the wine side, it's probably due to, like, cheaper product from other countries developing into, like, total decency. Like, like you're not afraid to drink this wine. It's not going to give you arsenic poisoning kind of thing. As traditional European grapes have been cultivated in various places around the world. Lauren comes in and ruins our fear-mongering headlines. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. But she is gripped. Um, <laughs> After the U.S., France is McDonald's second biggest moneymaker. What? Yes. How dare you, France? You betray yourself. <laughs> How could you? Not for nothing, though. Uh, McDonald's in France, they're different than the ones oh. in the U.S. Yeah. Um, they're bigger and more spread out. I kind of got like this coffee shop vibe. Okay. I think I called them stealth McDonald's in another episode. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh-huh. They're um, according to a piece I read by NPR, the food is sourced locally and it's higher quality than its American counterpart. Oh, that's nice. It's still fast food, but you know. Uh-huh. Um, when Burger King opened, people waited in line for hours and it was called by some press the hottest restaurant in Paris. Oh, that's <laughs> mean. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, and in a 2014 survey of French restaurants found that one-third of them the hamburger was their best-selling menu item. Huh. Yeah, meaning that about half of all sandwiches sold in French are hamburgers. Huh. Yeah. Eh, that's okay. I mean, hamburgers are delicious. Yeah, they are. Everyone likes a hamburger. Mm-hmm. You could cook it in kind of a French style. Definitely. Most likely related, though, one in ten of French adults are obese, and ah. about 40% of the overall population is overweight. And it appears we can point the finger of blame for all of this at modernity and changing times. Changing times. People move to cities and they Mm -hmm. shop more frequently at large grocery stores. They don't have as much time to cook and they don't have as much time to eat. That concept of like walking or biking everywhere is is less necessary as, you know, Mm -hmm. your distances have shrunk. Yes, and fast food restaurants are cheap and convenient and Paris is expensive, especially if you've got kids. Oh, yeah. And hot cuisine is often pretty heavy food. Mm-hmm. And as 
we as a society have become more health conscious. Health conscious, it's viewed by many as something indulged in only on special occasions. Kind of just look at it. <laughs> there are also elements of nostalgia or culture of cultural identity, uh, pride of resistance to change. And not necessarily just for the French, but for fans of, say, Julia Child. Mm -hmm. Yeah. French cuisine is a huge part of what France is, and people have understandably wanted to hold on to it. But that is beginning to loosen a little. Chefs from around the world are experimenting with French cuisine. In the same way, it's difficult to say something is truly American. French cuisine is starting to mean so much more than what it used to, um, and it's more open to evolving and innovation. And on a sad but interesting side note, one of the reasons French food um, or Western European food is so much more expensive in the U.S. has to do with cultural prestige and perception. Yeah. Uh, here in America, we tend to hold the French in very high regards due possibly to, like, stuff going back to the revolution. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, for example, think the price difference between paninis and tortas or Japanese cuisine and Chinese cuisine. Ah. Yes, since poor French immigrants never settled in large populations ah. in the U.S., they enjoyed this reputation of high standards, of high culture, and Americans were willing to give it a higher regard and thus pay more for it. But sure. if you look at Italian cooking, it was held in high esteem until poor Italian immigrants came to the U.S., and then they were derisively called garlic lovers. Isn't everyone a garlic lover? I know. I oh, love garlic. Okay. Once Italian immigrants started to accumulate more wealth, the prestige associated with their cuisine rose once again. In the Atlantic article I was reading, which was really interesting, by the way, it used examples of how in a New York Times article published about 80 years ago, things like spaghetti, corn on the cob, and apple pie were weird. Um, and now they're pretty common and quote unquote American uh, as an example of how the American palate is constantly evolving and how not too far in the future we'll probably embrace a whole new generation of cuisines. Yeah. Yeah. So hopeful note. So yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, yay for racism and classism as per the usual. Um, that's uh, yay, yay for yay for it maybe changing in the future. That would be that would be nice. The head the headline of that article is the future is expensive Chinese food. Yeah, and you know, I hope it is. Yeah, I mean we're constantly evolving. Who knows? Mm -hmm. So that is our <laughs> why is French cuisine the cuisine? Is our convoluted and beautiful answer. Yeah, there was a lot of good stuff in there. I was not expecting <laughs> so much <laughs> in this episode, which was a lovely surprise. Yes. So, um Oh yeah, this 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 is uh bringing us to our listener mail segment. Our first one today came in uh based on our sourdough episode from Jillian. I wanted to add on to the sourdough episode in regards to storing your sourdough in the fridge versus on the counter. There's a very big flavor and texture difference that results from each. In culinary school, we were taught to initially ferment the leaven, the starter, for 24 hours at room temp, then to transfer it to the fridge for the night and pull it out the next day, and then back to the fridge at night, and so on for the rest of the week. 
The fridge fermentation creates a more glutinous and sweeter bread, and the room temperature creates a more sour, crumbly bread. During warm ferment, the wild yeast create an abundance of energy and break most of the different sugars down into lactic acid. The enzymes are unable to keep up with the yeast. When the leaven is cold fermented, it slows the wild yeast action and allows the enzymes to catch up with the yeast. The yeast also produces more lactic acid at warm ferment and acetic acid during cold ferment. Letting the enzymes catch up is important because they break many of the starches down into different sugars, such as glucose, sucrose, galactose, raffinose, and most importantly, maltose. Maltose is unavailable to the yeast, so it never gets broken down into acid. This creates a sweeter, more malty, uh, caramel-flavored bread. I love that. I I never really thought about it. That it would have different taste, different flavor. But of course it would, based yeah. on the action of the... Oh, that's really good. Okay, so yeah, so it's so an important note for all y'all sourdough bakers out there. Right. To, maybe, maybe try switching it up. Yeah, do a little experimenting. Mm-hmm. Ariel wrote in about our sweetbread episode. I have a fun story about see- sweetbreads. Actually, I have three, but I'm picking one to share, so this email isn't too long. Every summer, the American Meat Science Association holds a meat conference, which moves locations each year. The organization is fantastic because it puts a lot of energy into the student members, and there are several competitions held at the conference. One of them is an Iron Chef competition, where students are assigned groups and mystery meats to cook over the course of a day. Last year, we all had to cook variety meats, either cheek meat, tongue, which would also make a good podcast, yes, or sweetbreads, which is what my group was given. We made sweetbread jalapeno poppers, which I thought were very good. We lost. The team that won also had sweetbreads, but they cooked them in wine and deep fried them, so we didn't stand a chance. Oh. Still, it was a great experience to work with such a unique food. Oh goodness, I I just I just lost myself a little bit when when I heard the phrase American Meat Science Association. Yes, that's an excellent phrase. I oh also meat conference. Okay. <laughs> yes. Yes. And one final thing from Liz on Twitter that I loved. Oh yeah. She was responding to her apple pie episode with. <laughs> apple pie with cheese. The saying at home is, quote, apple pie without the cheese is like a hug without the squeeze. Oh. That's beautiful. It is. So thank you so much to all of you for writing in. Yeah. Keep them coming. Yes, yes. If you would like to do that thing, uh, you can send us an email. Yes, our email address is foodstuff at howstuffworks.com. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Uh, we're at foodstuff, HSW on two of them, and at foodstuff on the Instagram. Mm-hmm. You can figure out which ones. Yes. We also make videos, so <laughs> come check those out. Yeah, we, we love hearing from you. It's uh, been so excellent. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, we started publishing things on YouTube. Um, they're also up on Facebook and on Amazon videos. So there are many different ways for you to, to, to catch up. Mm-hmm. I just said catch up like three times in the past two minutes. So that means that it's time for me to say, we hope lots more good things are coming your way. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. 
And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation! Give me a golf course. 70 courses! Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach yoga. How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.